Previously on Beta. You know, the moon is a very insignificant part of my domain now. There is so much, 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 much more. There must be clubs like this all over the world. We know some of these people. Oh, man, I wish I could go back in time. I take state. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta. Today, screenwriter and actor Guinevere Turner joins us to talk about her beautifully written and captivating memoir, When the World Didn't End, in which she revisits her childhood as a member of the Lyman family cult. I've been spoken of as a cult survivor, but can I really call myself a cult survivor when I begged to stay? Also, the fantastical storyteller Jonathan Carroll introduces us to the failing comedian Graham Patterson, who is given a chance to change his life, literally. So basically, he can observe these three lives, and then he has three chances to go back to each of them. But first... Miss Yuka was standing in front of her desk when she began to brush a small piece of lint off her skirt just above her right knee, and Harold wondered if there was more lint in China than in the United States and wondered if it mattered and if so, how. That's the opening sentence from Stephen Wright's debut novel. Stephen is one of the most innovative and imaginative stand-up comedians of all time. He comes in at number 15 on Rolling Stone's 50 Best Stand-Up Comics of All Time list. I'd say that's not high enough. For my money, what little I have, I would put Stephen in the top three. But I digress. Stephen's novel is called Harold. It focuses on a third grade student named Harold, who was growing up during the 1960s. You could say that Harold's brain never shuts off. He's constantly having intriguing, mind-bending thoughts which arrive in the form of birds that fly into his brain. So how does Stephen think sitting down and focusing changed the way he came up with ideas? When I started writing Harold, I, then I began to like daily sit down on purpose and focus for like two hours, getting high on coffee and focusing like what could this kid be doing what could happen here so that was another whole other way of uh creating for me to sit on purpose and focus like that and it and there were things came out of my mind that i never knew was in there if i hadn't done that right was it was it kind of strange to go from telling jokes on stage to hundreds of people to writing prose with nobody there to react to your work was that kind of a strange experience it was different but it wasn't strange because when you think about it, it's writing, it's just thinking. I mean, I've been writing for 40 years, but stand-up. But, so this was more writing, but it wasn't stand-up. But it was still, it wasn't strange. It was just, just a different thing. I got to write things that weren't funny, like describing the room, describing people. That was a lot of fun for me because everything, of course, is not a joke in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about your protagonist, Harold. He's seven years old and he's in the third grade. What else can you tell us about him? He despises that he's in school. He despises that the teacher is in charge. He thinks it's, you know, the country is based on freedom and this is a dictatorship right here that he goes to every single day. It's a total hypocrite thing. He has a crush on my girl, Elizabeth. 
But he's looking out the window and he's seeing trees and he's seeing a funeral go by and he, he's just wondering, he's a wondering, it says in there, he's a wondering machine. I mean, I wonder a lot too. I wonder all, a lot like a child, but not as much as a child. A child is like they got off a spaceship, they were dropped here and they don't know anything. And they, they're like looking at everything, like scientists, they're automatic scientists. He's a, he's a nice person though, I think. But he has oh, yeah, a lot very likable. Thank you. And I like the violent, he has the violent images of tying the teacher up to a pole with wolves all around it. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Harold's brain never se seems to stop thinking. And I'm curious, is that the way your own brain operates? Are you constantly thinking? Is your brain constantly in overdrive? It's thinking, but in a very casual way. I mean, I don't think you could stop thinking, anyone, even if you try to. But I'm not thinking like, oh, my God, I got to do something to calm it down. Oh, my God. It's just like a casual river, just, just flowing flowing you know and the thing the part about in the book where he's describing the inside of his head is like a indoor sky and there's thousands of birds that each represent a thought and when they go through the little rectangle in his head it's like a picture frame or a window frame with nothing in it when the when the bird goes through that then that's the subject he thinks of i thought of that as an analogy years before i was writing harold and then I thought, well, I'll just put this in here. And now that enabled me to change the subject constantly because of the birds, putting a logic into it. But your mind, everyone's mind, I think, goes like, you know, you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you're wondering where, where did Bob, where does Bobby Orr live now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what, one of the great features of your book was the, the recurring, these cameo appearances throughout your novel that birds make. and. And just the way, yeah, they the way they enter Harold's brain. One of my Thank favorite you. Harold thoughts deals with the invention of color film and black and white film. Can you share that with us? Yes. Well, as I was writing it, things would come into my mind that I thought of years ago that had nothing to do with Harold. They weren't stand-up thoughts. They were just general. You know, I, I thought I know the logistics of black and white to come first technically, but I used to think, well, you know. Color should have come first if you put aside the technical aspects of it, because color is really how everything looks. So black and white is an abstraction, and you would think that that came second. Like you know, like Salvador Dali could paint very realistically, and then he went into the surrealism. I know it's not really logical, but that's how I kind of saw it, is like in a kidding way. And then mm -hmm. the guy who invented, in the book, the guy who invented color film lives across the street from the guy who invented black and white film. And, and at the same time, they, they have an arm, I think they arm wrestle to decide. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's first. great. That that whole idea is great. I, just that that's such a mind bending and such an addictive idea <laughs> because it's like the opposite of what Ted Turner did like back in the late 80s and early 90s when he was colorizing all the black and white movies. Oh, yeah. And then there was that oh, great yes. outbreak and how dare he do that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was very intrigued about the fact that Harold repeatedly throughout your book has many thoughts about the Lakota people. Can you share a few of those thoughts with us? I've always been fascinated by, the, I will say, the Indians. I've been fascinated by what was here before the white man came and 
about six, seven years ago, I was in Logan Airport in Boston before I went on the plane, and I saw this book in the store called In the Heart of Everything. It was about the great Dakota chief, uh, Red Cloud. He organized the Indians into one big giant army so they could collectively fight the white man. And I loved the book. I just loved the, the idea of the, what was happening before you know, all this madness is something I love about it. So I'm writing Harold and I'm not thinking, oh, I need to put the Lakota in. It's like, and it's like, your mind is skipping around. Like I said, the birds, you know, and then I think, oh, the Lakota. Oh, oh, I have the Lakota. And then I get to have the perspective of them in there. Like when he, like he meets his grandfather in Rapid City uh, meets some Lakota because they're building a run an airport after Pearl Harbor, and so his grandfather knows some Lakota, and he, he says to, uh, the uh, Lakota thought that a planetarium was insane, like that only the white man would build an indoor sky and then charge money to look at it. But why they're in there in the Lakota is because they just came into my head from reading the book six years ago. It just leaked into my head, and then I liked that they were in there, and then they kept being in there. Mm-hmm. I loved that they were in there. I thought that was one oh, of, thank the, you. One of thank many highlights you. of the book. No, thank you. Oh, and you great. Men- yeah, you mentioned Harold's grandfather. I wanted to ask you, they have a really interesting, a really nice, solid relationship between the two of them. Can you tell us a bit about that? I've always thought that it wasn't based on my grandfather or a real person at all. I just think that a kid who's starting out in the world, he's seven, he hasn't gone into all the madness yet. And the old guy has gone all the way around all the madness, and he's going to be going out of the world soon. And I think they have a, a similar perspective in the sense that the old guy sees that it's all bullshit, and he's just fed up with it. And he almost sees the world so simply because he's went through all the thinking of figuring everything out and then he realizes it's all just so really simple and the kid is it sees it's simple too and i just thought that they had a a connection like a, a circle if you had a circle that doesn't connect like on three inches apart like one part that doesn't connect is the seven-year-old and the other part is the 70 year old guy so that they're really near each other but the circle represents the whole world that the guy went through and that Harold will go through. Yeah, exactly. There, there's a very interesting scene, or I guess we could call it a sequence of Harold uh, uh, on the moon, having a meal on the moon. Can you talk a bit about this? I don't know. I Just one day I imagined a cafe on the moon. It was just tables. Um, I was just from trying to write something that day, and my mind just, I don't know why I had a cafe on the moon, just tables and chairs, and then that waitress is on there. And then I loved the visual of this little boy up there looking back at the earth. I don't know why, it just kind of happened. Were you seeing it when you were reading it? Did you see it in your head? Yeah, I did, and I thought it was—I thought it was very cinematic. And I think when I was reading that, that, that those passages, it made me think how when we spoke last time, you talked about how you wanted to make uh, a full-length film. You've made some films, including an Academy Award winner, but you wanted to make a full-length movie. And I kind of wondered: does this, does writing, did writing Harold sort of scratch that itch? 
Or do you still want, you know what I mean? Because in a way, it was kind of a movie, you know, written, directed, acted by you, kind of. Yes, it did. It did. Because uh, I think so visually all the time, even the jokes. There's even a reference in the Herald where the, when the girl's way, way far away, the girl, Tinga, she's running across, I think it says like a long shot, like a David Lean shot. Mm-hmm. It says so it even says that because I love his movies, but it did give me an itch to, to make a film, but in the sense that I don't even know really what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think so? so? I would disagree with that. Well, well, I think I you know what well, you're doing. Well, I mean, what I mean is I'm going by my gut. I mean, it's just like, okay, maybe this, okay, yeah, maybe this. So I was just going by my gut with this book the length what was everything so that made me trust my gut even more like which makes me think of maybe trying a a movie because of uh i know you say it looks like i know what i'm doing but i'm just it's not planned i don't think like oh now he should say funny things oh now there should be i just was going by my gut now there should be something in the class now like now it should change to a dream or a daydream. Like from the stand-up, you learn to keep the audience's attention. There's different ways besides what you're saying. Change the subject, change where you walk around, change where you're just standing there, change playing the guitar or not playing the guitar, you know? So you learn all these things to keep their attention. I guess I know what I'm doing, but I just write it off as gut. But uh-huh. I guess I know what I'm doing. The dust jacket copy for your book says that this novel will change the way you perceive your daily existence. And I think that it did have that effect on me. Has it had that effect on you? Has writing Harold changed the way you perceive your daily existence? No, it hasn't. But it just made me trust what I'm doing. Is It made me trust it more. Like we were talking about before, the gut. It mm-hmm. made me think, you know, because, you know, I, I know you think I you know completely what I'm doing, but that's part of me doesn't. I only know what I'm doing to a certain part level. So the part that the book is working makes me think, well, my gut is pretty good. Are you planning to write another book? I don't know, really. I, I Maybe probably someday, but what this the book itself, since it's all over now, took years to do and now it's out now i'm talking about it it's like i'm coming out of a tunnel not that's not a negative thing coming out of a tunnel and my mind is like opening up like now okay now what are we gonna do you know i and i'm not even trying to think what i'm gonna do i just know that the creative part of me wants to do something else i don't know what it is yet though maybe it'll be a film thing i I don't know but it's a it's exciting. Creating is thinking. It's like playing to me, like a child doing finger paints. It's very playful. I don't put a lot of pressure on it. Like when I was writing that Harold, I didn't have a book deal at the time. I was writing it for years before they even got involved. And I was just amusing myself. And I wasn't thinking like, how will people look at this? I, I had a lot of fun writing it. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of fun reading it. Stephen Wright, congratulations on Harold. It's an unforgettable, very funny, and very thought-provoking novel. Thank you very much for writing it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
comedian Stephen Wright on his debut novel, Harold. Find out more about Stephen and Harold at wpr.org slash beta. People don't join cults that are already horrific and crazed and spiral-eyed. People join utopias. Coming up, Guinevere Turner joins us to talk about growing up as a member of the Lyman family cult. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Imagine being six years old and believing that the world was going to end. Your community taught you to believe this terrifying idea, but they also taught you that you would be saved. A spaceship was going to come and take you and your family members to Venus. These are the ideas that Guinevere Turner was taught to believe as a member of the Lyman family. Guinevere was only six years old at the time and did not realize that her family was actually a cult. She writes beautifully and bravely about her experience growing up as a member of the Lyman family in her memoir, When the World Didn't End. She also explains how she managed to leave, attend Sarah Lawrence College, and go on to establish a successful career as a screenwriter and an actor. So what was it like for her and the other members of her community when no spaceship landed to rescue them on January 5th, 1975? The adults were very somber, glum. There were some tears. There was anxiety in the air. The leader of the family I grew up in, he never came out and really spoke to everyone as a group, but he said that it was because our souls weren't ready and that we had kind of ruined it for him. He was ready and he hadn't realized that we weren't. And so things got very somber. It was a somber period of everybody feeling guilty about not being Venus ready and about, you know, working on our souls more. And they started the year at zero. So that was the year zero one. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You spent your first 11 years as a member of the Lyman family. What were those years like for you? In many ways, they're like the first 11 years of anyone's life. We were homeschooled. We we lived on compounds where, that we did not leave. You know, adults left to go to grocery stores, etc. But we kids did not unless we were traveling between the compounds. And, you know, when you live with that many people, there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of chores. Uh, and in Kansas on the farm where one of the compounds was, were a lot of crops and a lot of animals. So daily life was also about farm life and tending to crops and taking care of animals and a lot of harvesting and a lot of food prep and a lot of laundry. (laughs) And, you know, they were really trying to live off the grid as much as possible and make, and so we were constantly canning uh, foods and sending them and, you know, killing chickens and sending them to the other places. And a lot of music usually at night because everybody played instruments and we sang a lot and a lot of either listening to the tapes that Mel Lyman made for us, he would make a kind of, release a kind of mixtape of music he loved, curated for a particular reason or of a particular era. He would release them and then when he first released them, they would come with liner notes and we would listen to them and read the liner notes and then we would write him a letter about what we thought about it. And, uh, and then there was the Lord's List of Movies, which were the movies that he loved. 
And if they were on TV, bear in mind, this is the 70s, so no VCRs, no DVR, no on-demand stuff. So if it was on TV, we watched it. If it was on the Lord's List and it was on TV and we could see in the TV guide that it was going to be on at three in the morning, we all woke up to watch it. And luckily they were movies like Betty Davis and Dark Victory or James Mason and Odd Man Out or Casablanca and Have and Have Not and, you know, my, my heroes. Those were my icons, those the, the mm. 40s and 50s movie stars. I just thought someday I want to be like Lauren McCall and I didn't know it was called a key light, but, you know, the light that they put right over their eyes in those movies and the sparkle and the little bit of, you know, fuzzy lens. I was like, I want to be that lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about Mel Lyman? Well, my perspective on, on him is interesting because I was a kid and because I left when I was 11. I didn't have and I still don't have an adult sense of really what he was after or what he wanted, or even what his doctrine was. You know, we were raised with this kind of idea that, you know, you need to be present and you need to be full of love and you need to, you know, think not only in terms of yourself, but don't be selfish and work hard and raise your consciousness, evolve into someone who is not just a grunt of a human. You know, these are abstract ideas and a tall order for kids, but I was told that I was, you know, I had been on the earth too many times because I hadn't learned my lesson and so that I was a this old soul that that kept messing up, like Matthew McConaughey and Dazed and Confused, like the, the grown-up who's hanging out with high school kids. And, and so I was constantly consumed with, what is this lesson that I haven't learned? And when we didn't go to Venus, I thought it might be my fault because I didn't, I'm the one who didn't learn a lesson. You were told that you had to leave the Lyman family in August of 1979. Why? My mother left with the guy that she was with at the time. And my father was never in the family. And so they told me that I needed to go with her. But I wasn't raised in the same place as her. I knew her, I would visit her now and then, but I really didn't know her in this kind of traditional parent-child way. She was a bad person. So it was very hard for me to wrap my head around why I would have to leave when she was a bad person and I'd been raised to believe that the world was bad, but they said, you know, your father's not here and every every kid has at least one parent in the family. And I was like, even at that age, which was 11, I was like, but you don't, like, we don't know them. Why do parents suddenly matter? I understand now, legally. For legal reasons, they would want to not just have a kid flailing around with no trace of actual origin. Fields of marijuana, fine. Homeschooling tons of kids, fine. But not this. This is, this is the one. <laughs> So off I went, and I, I have been joking as I'm talking about this book. I just had this thought last week. I've been spoken of as a cult survivor. But can I really call myself a cult survivor when I begged to stay? Mm-hmm. So after you were told that your mother had left, what happened to you? I was in Kansas, and I was shipped to Boston, where I was supposed to talk to one of the you know men in charge. And I asked him again, please don't make me go. And they weren't mean. I mean, they were sort of like, you know, you got it. You have to. If you really can't take it, you you always have a home here. So I was sent, shipped off to my grandmother's with my sister, who was four at the time, where my mother was, uh, my mother and the guy that she left with. And we lived at my grandmother's for a few months until they figured out they got a house. And I got to go to public school for the first time, which was I was both excited about and nervous about, and even more nervous when I got there because I realized how different I looked. But I was uh, 
so thrilled that the rest of the sadness of my life almost melted away when I was in school because I was so excited about learning. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, you mentioned the sadness of your life. There was so much sadness in your life, some very harrowing experiences you had when you moved in with your mother, your younger sister, Anna Lee, and your mother's boyfriend, who you refer to as FP. Well, what was that experience like for you? Well, FP, uh, which is not his real name, I don't, uh, I didn't change it to protect him. I changed it because I didn't want to look at his real name. So he was, you know, an abusive man physically and eventually sexually abusive. To me, he was controlling, violent, volatile, and really was trying to replicate a mini version of the Lyman family with him as the, as the, you know, all-knowing, all-seeing dictator. And so that was rough. That was four years of my life until I, after many stops and starts of trying to get away from that household and figure out how to just get through high school unscathed and get to college, I eventually got out permanently when I was 16. Yeah, so how how did you manage to get out of that household and attend Sarah Lawrence College? First, I wrestled my way out of that household and moved in with my grandmother. But within a few weeks, FP kicked my mom out. And so then my mom and my three younger siblings all lived with my grandmother and then he would start showing up and then I had to go through all of that and and eventually eventually I my boyfriend at the time who was a very new boyfriend his father who I maybe had met once agreed to adopt me and let me live there with him for the rest of my high school with them for the rest of my high school years which was two more years which is the stuff of fairy tales really when Lloyd Spears swooped in and actually became my legal guardian and adopted me. That was uh, an incredible moment in my life. I'm forever grateful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've included childhood diary entries from the perspective of your 60 to 18-year-old self. If you don't mind my asking, what was it like for you to revisit those entries while you were writing your memoir? Well, the, especially the one that is from 1979, which is the year that I transitioned from being in the family to being out in the world, so to speak, that one is already so familiar to me because I read it so much when I was really sad and longing to go back. It was like this little Bible for me of preserving everyone that I grew up with and, you know, promising myself that I would go back and, you know, they would write little notes in the margins and it's kind of, you know, just savor their handwriting, etc. So that one is really familiar. But I found a lot of more diaries that I hadn't looked at because I forgot because I had stopped officially writing in my diary, but then I just couldn't stop writing. So there were these art journals that I only kept at school and I just, those just turned into journals as if I couldn't help myself. There were days that I was just like, that was horrible. How am I still alive? How do I not have an eye twitch? At least. <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. I mean, there were definitely days where I thought, you know, why am I doing this? I was also really enjoying, I'm a screenwriter normally, I've never written a book before. And so I've suddenly just felt so free writing in this form. Screenwriting has so many rules. It took me, I kept thinking, how am I going to use these diaries? This is, this is such perfect raw material. Like, this is really me. I'm, you know, you can't deny, like, oh, how could you remember that? It's like, I wrote it down. That's me. You know, this is how I perceived it at the time. And so it, it was a great moment when I realized, oh, I can, I can just let her tell the story for little pieces of it. Mm-hmm. 
And I really love the structure of it, the way you would go with like your current writing and then also dip into the diary entries. It was very artfully done. You mentioned you're a screenwriter and you wrote the screenplay for my fellow Canadian Mary Heron's feature film, American Psycho, and you also acted in the film. That's a very dark movie. What was going through your mind while you were writing the screenplay? I'm actually, it, probably people don't think this of me because of my work, but I don't like scary movies. Really? Like, I wonder oh. how long it would have taken me to watch the film American Psycho if I hadn't been a part of making it. That was hard That because, you know, it's based on a, a book, a famous book, and that book is brutal. It is so graphically violent and so, like, a lot of sort of graphic sex that morphs into violence. And it was very traumatizing to read the book. And, it, you know, just we, Mary and I, we, we were staying in a house in Mexico writing together and we were reading pieces of the book, you know, trying to figure out the shape of the movie. And then we would go to bed and wake up and be like, what were your nightmares like? <laughs> that was hard. But that was so long ago now. I can't believe people still care about this movie. It's been, that movie came out in, in 2000. And it's amazing to me the kind of waves of popularity that it gets and, and, and how, a, you know, a new generation li- likes it way more than anyone did when it came out. It's pretty, I love that. You've also collaborated with Mary Heron on the 2018 film Charlie Says, which is about the women who killed for Charles Manson, and it focuses on the time they spent in prison. What motivated you to write the screenplay for this movie? Well, the producers of that film approached me because they were fans of American Psycho. And I had a very satisfying moment in the meeting of saying, yeah, I did write American Psycho, but also I grew up in a cult. And also there's a book from the 70s called Mind, which is a book about the Manson family and the Lyman family. So it's, I'm an obvious fit. I wanted to write it because all their edict was, was we want to make a movie that focuses on the quote unquote Manson girls. I first thought, ah, this subject is so like hashed and rehashed. Like, what do I have? Uh, but then I eventually found my way through research and stuff to, to really focusing on their time in prison, which is something that's never been represented in film or TV and is an incredible story. And I now realize looking back that I was sort of tricking myself because I always wanted to write this book about my experience, but I never quite knew how or when. And I didn't just want to make a movie because that just felt kind of cheesy and sellouty. But I realized I was tricking myself. If I want to write this movie, then I'm going to have to talk about how I grew up and how that influenced the movie, which means that I'm going to, it's going to be front and center how I grew up. And, and maybe that means that it's finally going to be time to mm-hmm. write a book about it. And that all happened. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have like a bunch of flashbacks and negative energy to your time in the Lyman family, because obviously it was not as, it was not the, the nightmare that uh, the Manson family cult was. So you, you didn't have flashbacks? No, it was actually kind of a great and interesting exercise and in informing my path to writing this book, which is remembering that people don't join cults that are already horrific and crazed and spiral-eyed. People join utopias. And to really think about the utopian things about how I grew up and how what you know, Spawn Ranch must have looked like when Leslie Van Houten first showed up. And to really, really try to get across to an audience what the baby steps are of coercion and manipulation and eventually brainwashing and how it starts out so beautifully and the insidious ways that it turns. I do have this knowledge and this perspective on cult life and this kind of coercion that not a lot of people have and certainly not a lot of 
screenwriters have. Like, I'm like, yes, I finally found a place where it's relevant, where it's useful, where, where I can actually share something that I know in my bones and put it into, the, into a piece of work that's going to be a movie. Mm-hmm. Very well said. I understand that you're adapting your memoir in turning it into a film. What can you tell us about that? I am adapting. I didn't want to write it at first because I'm just sick of it. I, I really wanted some other screenwriter to have to deal with a, an essentially really challenging book to adapt. <laughs> I have read so many books in the last few years that feel like the writers are writing them because they want them to be movies. And I did not. I wanted to keep movies out of my head when I wrote this book. So now I'm like, what crazy person wrote this book? How am I going to make this into something that's that translates visually? How many actors are going to play me? You know, can I go from a, a, such a, a, a age range in which you change so much? And, you know, the book has the, a lot of the horrific abuse that I experienced. And who wants to direct, you know, that 13-year-old actor on the day, you know, or the, the adult, you know, playing the abusive person. So that's also, it's, it feels different than it does writing it on a piece of paper because other people have to participate in, in making it a reality. So it's a lot. I'm, I, luckily, I, I'm, I have to, a little bit of time to think about it. Mm, yeah. Guinevere Turner, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. And congratulations on When the World Didn't End. It's a beautifully written and fascinating memoir. Thank you so much. Guinevere Turner is the author of When the World Didn't End, a memoir. Find out more about Guinevere at wpr.org slash beta. I turned to the people who were with me and I said, what's going on? Who's that? And they said, that's for you. And I had the first panic attack of my life. Coming up, master storyteller Jonathan Carroll joins us to discuss his latest novel, Mr. Breakfast. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Pointing to the bee, she said, this one is your life now. Next, she pointed at the frog. The frog is the life Graham II is living. Though Graham III, famous comedian with the mohawk life. She stopped talking and looked over to see if he fully grasped what she was saying. He didn't move or speak, but his eyes were riveted to her face. The hawk is Graham III. The life you would be living if you'd stayed with Ruth, married her, and had children together. She pointed to the lion, and the king of the jungle, there, is your future. The life you'll live after you decide which of these three you want forever. That's Jonathan Carroll reading an excerpt from his latest novel, Mr. Breakfast. Chances are that you might not have heard of Jonathan Carroll, If not, then today is your lucky day. Neil Gaiman describes Mr. Breakfast as a beautiful, brilliant meditation on art, love, inspiration, and what makes life worthwhile. The book is about a failing comedian named Graham Patterson. On a cross-country drive, he decides to get a tattoo. The artist not only gives him a -a one-of-a-kind tattoo, she also gives him a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. 
The tattoo artist tells Graham that his lost soul can jump between three different universes. Through these experiences, he will find some combination of love, fame, and fatherhood. Jonathan gives us insight into what it would be like to live a different life. I have always been fascinated with the life not lived, whether in real life or in literature. I just think, you know, there's so many wonderful versions of it from the Borges to the film Sliding Doors and others. It's just, I think it's it's one of the universal questions that, that we ask, you know, along the lines of why am I here or is there a God? The question is, what would my life be like if I had gone left instead of right? or I'd taken that job, or I hadn't taken that job, those possibilities that you had in life that you chose to go in one direction rather than the other. And, you know, the Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that, uh, you mentioned in Jorge Luis Borges' short story, The Garden of Forking Paths, and the movie Sliding right. Doors, and you've cited these two works as influences. Can you talk a bit about how they, how they influenced Mr. Breakfast? Well, I don't think that it is an understatement, but I don't think that it's an easy question to answer. One of the the things that that the Borges story basically points out is that if you choose to go in one direction, there are going to be things that you were completely unexpected. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was young, I really, really wanted to be a, a writer and hopefully famous. And in one country, I went to to do a book promotion where my books sell well. I had an appointment to do a book signing. This was my dream come true. I always wanted to be a well-known writer, blah, blah. And I was going to this event where lots of people were going to come. And as I was walking to the event, there was a line in the store, out of the store, around the corner, around the block. And I turned to the people who were with me and I said, what's going on? Who's that? And they said, that's for you. And I had the first panic attack of my life. I walked into the building, said to them, I have to go to the bathroom. They said, well, no, you're supposed to, you have to start. I said, I've got to go to the bathroom. They took me to the bathroom. I went into a stall, sat down on it and held my head in my hands going, you can do this. You can do it, just be cool. And I went down and I did it, but it really was everything that I'd ever wanted oh yeah, well, you don't want this and you didn't expect it. And and I think that, that this is so true with people, you know, I want to be famous, I want to be successful, I want to marry Susie, I, you know, all these things. And, you know, that old saying, be careful what you ask for, because you'll get it, but it won't be the version that you dreamed about having. Mm-hmm. The protagonist in Mr. Breakfast is a failing comedian named Graham Patterson. He has a life-changing experience when he meets a tattoo artist named Anna in North Carolina. What happens? He goes to this, this uh, tattoo parlor because his car is broken down. It's a complete uh, spontaneous thing. He walks by the store and in the window are these incredible renderings of, of the tattoos that are done at the store and and he had never seen anything like it so just on a whim he walks in and uh becomes fascinated by the whole possibility and it's very much unlike the old guy the old graham who's who's kind of lost in his life at this point and he has the tattoo artist she shows him a book of her tattoos and he chooses one and it turns out that it's very magical 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, very magical indeed. Can you tell us how it is magical? What what prop what magical properties the tattoo has? It allows him to see the three lives that he could live at this moment. The one that he's living, the one where he his dream comes true, and I won't go into it more than that. And the third one is a, a kind of domestic life in which, you know, family and children and all this stuff. And the tattoo artist who is the bringer of the magic says, you can watch this, but you can't participate in it. So basically he can observe these three lives and then he has three chances to go back to each of them. He has to go check in, check out. And then at the end of those three chances or even earlier, he has to choose. And then after he chooses, then his memory will be wiped of this experience and he'll just be Grant Patterson living in a, in a, a normal life. Mm-hmm. It's a very intriguing premise, and you write about it and execute it so well. I'm curious, if you were faced with this situation of being able to choose these alternative lives, what would you decide to do? Frankly, I don't know. My wife asked me the other day, she said, if you couldn't be a writer, what would you be? And I said, um, a musician. And she looked at me like, I've been married 50 years. And she looked at me like she'd never seen this guy before. She said, a musician? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be one of those guys who's like a piano bar player. And, you know, or I can just walk in and start to play with whatever group is up there. And she said, I have never in all of my life with you <laughs> thought that you would want that as your alternative. So there you go. Yeah. You said that you know you can start a book when you have the title or the first sentence. Was that the case with Mr. Breakfast? Yep, it was. And what's funny is that uh, I looked the other day to see if there are any book reviews of Mr. Breakfast online. I realized that besides my own book and book title, there are like 400 restaurants named Mr. Breakfast in America. <laughs> I thought that was being really original when I came up with the title. And yeah, I'm I thought so way, too. I, I'm, I'm way behind the line. <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, yeah. So which came first, uh, the, the title or the first sentence? I came up with the title and I came up with the idea of it. I said, how do I start this? Do I start it at the beginning? Do I start it at the end? You know, what, what do I give away from the, from the beginning? And a lot of the time, people who read my books enjoy the first sentence because it's usually so off the wall. But with this, the, the, the first sentence is, do you want to talk about Patterson? It's like we've come in the middle of the conversation. Who's, who's asking this? Who's he asking it of, et cetera, et cetera, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's like, you know, to come in, in the middle of a conversation, like, what's going on here? Yeah, and that worked that way, as the Greeks said, in medias rest, right? In the middle of things, yeah. Do you have a favorite opening line from one of your books? Yeah, my favorite opening line is wouldn't see. It says, never buy yellow clothes or cheap leather. <laughs> and and, and, it's, and it's funny because that line came from, I was in a Viennese cafe one day, just sit, kind of sitting and daydreaming and looking out the window. And this guy walked by in this really cheap-looking yellow jacket. And I said, never buy yellow clothes or, or cheap leather. It just, and I went, oh, I like that. And I wrote it down. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's how it came to life. Right. So obviously, it, it is important to you how you start a book, hey, that you, hmm. you, you come up with a first sentence that you're, 
you're in, intrigued with and you think the reader will be intrigued by. Is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm a reader too, you know, and, uh -huh. and, and I read, you know, just everything. And and the thing is that I think that it's doing the reader a disservice if you don't engage them early. You know, it it can be a thriller. It can be Tolstoy. It doesn't make any difference if if it takes you thirty pages to get to something. It, you know, who's going to put up with thirty pages? Life's too short. Uh -huh. And so, uh, to, you know, whether it be a, a bouncy catch-all line or hopefully something a little bit more important, you owe the reader that. Get them engaged quickly. They may disengage soon after, but at least I got them hopefully from the beginning. Yeah. Well, I think with I think with all of your books, I think once you got you've got them from the beginning and they stay through to the middle and the end. I know that's been the case for me. Uh, I think that one of the most profound passages in, in Mr. Breakfast is this one. I just want to run it by you and see what you think. We all live in our past sometimes. Our memories become our present. Any life is a past, present, and future, not just a series of right nows. It, I think this idea is really a, an important part of what makes Mr. Breakfast such a beautiful book. Can you t talk about this idea? I think that too much too often we live in our past or in our future and forget that we're, you know, they ain't happening, but your now is. And I think that it causes a lot of problems and a lot of heartache because, you know, if you live in your future, right now is unimportant because tomorrow the good stuff happens. If you live in your past, the bad stuff kind of carries you like a dark cloud over you into the present. So, you know, if you're, if you're, still hating that lover from 20 years ago, that has an effect on right now and a big effect. It means that you're kind of preoccupied with something. You can do nothing to fix. It is fixed. There it is. That happened. And then, whereas the, the future is an abstract. So, you know, why, why play with something that's abstract when there's the concrete right now? Mm, very well said. And I get the sense from listening to you that you don't have a problem living in the present. Would that be fair to say? Well, for many years, I was a teacher and I wanted to be a writer. And so basically, I lived two lives. And when you live more than one life, you know, I, I would teach all day and then I'd come home, take an hour or so off and then write until, you know, one o'clock in the morning. I realized that you can get more done in a day if you believe that there's a time for it. You know, people have said to me so often, you know, I, if I had the time, I'd write a book. And I said, you do have the time. It's just a question of how important is writing a book to you. To me, it was very important. My now was teach for, for part of the day and write for part of the day. And, and I stuck to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I understand that the ending of Mr. Breakfast made you cry. Is that something yeah. that happens often when you're writing the endings no. of your novels? No, no, hmm. it doesn't. I think it happened once before when one of my, at the end of the book, one of my characters died. You get really attached to them. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous to say that because it's just words on a page, but I mean, you spent so much time living with these people and thinking for them and knowing that they were going into a dark place or that they were, that they were going to be safe after a while there's kind of an ectoplasmic real them in your life and so uh i didn't really know for a long time how i wanted to end it but when the ending came i went oh no and, <laughs> and that's the ending that it has now mm, yeah lucky for us 
dogs are recurring characters in your work. <laughs> you have a very powerful scene involving a dog in, in Mr. Breakfast. Can you tell us about that scene? I always say that dogs are minor angels. They're your best friend. They'll eat pizza with you at four o'clock in the morning. You step on them, they forgive you instantly. And so it's kind of a hobby horse for me to put it in almost all of my books in one form or another. And I'd, I'd rather not say what's up with Mr. Breakfast because um, I think that's one of the fun surprises. But it's, it's also a kind of how humans react with dogs on a more profound level than come here, Spot, let me scratch your head. Mm. Yeah. And also many of the dogs are talking dogs. <laughs> yeah. I remember what, the first time I ever had a talking dog was when I was writing Land of Laughs. And I, I very distinctly remember when I got to the point in the book where the dog talked, I kind of froze because it came out of nowhere. I said out loud, the dog just talked. I go, okay, <laughs> let's, why? And they just moved. I just kept going on. It was like, you know, the supernatural never happened sort of thing. But it was, it was no obstruction. It was just like, wow, the dog just talked. Now what do we do? Where do we go? Et cetera. Yeah. Author Joe Hill, who we've had on our show, has compared your work to Haruki Murakami, Brian Eno, and David Lynch. Joe says that your work is, is so fresh, weird, and original. It stands in a class of its own. For nearly 50 years now, how, how are you able to keep writing such fresh, weird, and original work? C.S. Lewis had a great line. He said, write the kind of books that you would like to read. And so far, I've felt that excitement. Oh, I got a great idea. It's, one, it's something that I would like to read. If I can pull it off the way that I want to, it'll really be a kind, the kind of book that I enjoy. It's the same thing as reading, you know, Joe Hill or reading Neil Gaiman or, or somebody else who lives in, in some, some sort of other world a world of wishes and dreams and fantasy. If the, the excitement is still there and the idea comes to me, then I can go and I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Carroll, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on Mr. Breakfast and all of your other great books. It's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for asking me. Jonathan Carroll is the author of Mr. Breakfast, Find out more about Jonathan and his books at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Stephen Wright, Guinevere Turner, and Jonathan Carroll. They have a lot of zany stuff on this program, don't you think? Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Don't forget to offer a rating or to share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. I don't think anyone presents themselves to me the way that they really are. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. I keep having this reoccurring dream that I'm captain of a ship in a bottle. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. Well, I spent the afternoon trying to daydream, but my mind kept wandering. <laughs>